Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, we're focused on the question of climate ambition. Here in Canada, we are finally establishing a target of net zero by 2050. We have a new updated climate plan. And on page 64 of that plan, we've committed to increase our climate ambition for 2030 as well. Now, I'm joined for this conversation by Dr. Yuri Rogel, who has published extensively on international climate agreements, carbon budgets, and global zero emission targets. He's long been a lead author of the UN Emissions Gap Annual Reports, and he's also a lead contributor to reporting from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, including the IPCC's one-and-a-half degree report. He is the Director of Research and Lecturer at Imperial College London. He's previously served as a member of the UN Secretary General's Climate Science Advisory Group, and he'll be helping to lead the IPCC's upcoming sixth assessment report. In other words, there are few people better placed in the world to discuss the challenge of climate ambition. Yuri, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I think of our efforts to address climate change through three lenses, ambition, accountability, and action. When we talk of ambition, we typically talk about targets for 2030 and 2050. More recently, here in Canada, we've also debated shorter-term milestones between those two dates. But from a scientist's perspective, how does one determine an appropriate global temperature target? Yeah, there, there are a couple of aspects here. First of all, an appropriate global temperature target is not necessarily a scientific question to answer. As scientists, we can describe you what the impacts would be at 1.5 degrees of warming. We can describe to you what the impacts would be at 2 degrees of warming, at 2.5 degrees of warming. As a scientist, I can show you increasingly dire pictures of how the world will look like. Uh, but it's not the scientist's role to say what is acceptable, what is desirable. So that is really a political choice. And that is a choice that was made and was made explicit at the Paris Agreement, where based on the available science at that point, governments of the United Nations decided that they considered to limit warming well below two degrees and pursue to limit it to 1.5, because that were the levels that they considered acceptable, safe to a certain degree. Now, once we have that societal choice of what we consider safe, we as scientists, we can tell you what you have to do. And that's where we can start telling you how to set targets. And the first part where we can inform you is, uh, is about the geophysics of how to stop warming. To stop or to halt global warming at any level, global emissions, global carbon dioxide emissions need to be brought down to zero. So we, we should stop putting any additional carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And the total amount of carbon dioxide that we will have emitted until that point defines how warm it is. So there is a carbon budget, and to stay within that carbon budget, we need to go down to net zero. Now, for the targets that we have currently on the table, well below 2 degrees, 1.5, that remaining carbon budget is extremely small. It is so small that, for example, for limiting warming to 1.5, our global CO2 emissions should start declining now and reach net zero levels by 2050. For just a, a slightly bit more warming, 1.6 or so, uh, it would be like one dec decade later. So these are clearly the geophysical constraints, the, the geophysical targets that we as scientists can, can set. And net zero by 2050 is certainly the takeaway for me from the IPCC's one and a half degree report. In the wake of that report, I'd called an emergency debate in our parliament, and I highlighted the importance of that net zero by 2050 commitment. Thankfully, we've seen it now in government legislation here in Canada. We've yet to pass it, but it's, it's subject mm -hmm. to debate right now. Knowing where we want to be, it's also important to know how far away from that goal we currently are. 
you were not only involved in the IPCC's one and a half degree report, but you, to my understanding, you're also a long time lead author of the UN emissions gap reporting. Walk me through that emissions gap and, and just how significant it is. Sure. Yes. So indeed, I've been a kind of for the past 10 years, I've been a lead author on the UNEP emissions gap report. That is kind of a annual science synthesis report that at its core tries to answer where are we heading and where should we be going? And what is the gap between those? Where we are heading, we are, we are looking at where we are heading based on our current policies, the current policies that are adopted or will be implemented, or where we are heading based on what countries have promised in their pledges or their nationally determined contributions that they submit to the Paris Agreement. On the other hand, we look at how pathways that limit warming to 2 degrees to one8 to 1.5 degrees of global warming look like from a scientific point of view with all the tools that we have in understanding the climate system and understanding how we can transform our society. And we look at where those pathways end up in 2030. And if we compare where we're heading with where we should be going for the past 10 years, we have been saying that there is a clear emissions gap. So that really means there are actually two gaps here. On the one hand, the pledges that we put forward are insufficient to put the world on track to limit warming, even to two degrees, and they're far off track. And at the same time, there is also something that we call an implementation gap. That means that the policies that are put in place are insufficient to meet the insufficient pledges. So that is actually a double whammy here in terms of failing to achieve the, the targets of the Paris Agreement. And I was struck by the scale of that gap when I went through the 2020 emissions gap report, unchanged largely from 2019. But my takeaway was countries need to strengthen their ambitions dramatically, specifically threefold to achieve a two degree goal and more than fivefold to achieve the one and a half degree goal. And that is based on not only the gap in targets, but the implementation gap that you're referencing. That's right. So just to give an idea of the, of the, of the numbers here. Today, we have our, our global emissions are roughly around 55 billion tons of CO2 equivalent. Now, the gap in 2030 under, uh, under current policies, they would, would end up slightly higher with 59 billion tons. Now, to be on track for two degrees, they would need to be around 15 billion tons lower. So that means a 25% reduction for, for limiting warming to 1.5. It would The gap is around 30 billion tons. So that really means we need to aim for half where we are currently heading for in 2030. It is clear that these emission reductions, they don't happen overnight. So we really need to start thinking about them today to ensure that we can achieve them by 2030. It's a good point because the policies we put in place today sometimes don't take full effect until years from now when we look at phasing out, say, coal-fired electricity here in Canada, which was a policy from the last parliament, or methane reduction rules. The emissions gap report does reference Canada specifically, says emissions projections are revised downward. That's good. But then says that overall, the nation is projected to miss its target unless policies are strengthened. Canada has acknowledged this, and in September 2020, it committed to bring forward enhanced measures that will allow the country to meet and exceed its target. Now, good news, we have a new plan, an updated climate plan that I think is serious and credible, and that shows now there isn't that implementation gap towards our current target. That's good news. And more good news, when we look at projected 2030 emissions when we first took office in 2015, those were 815 megatons. So we're not only measuring as against what, it, what emissions were in 2010, say, 
we're measuring progress, I think, as against what they would have been but for climate action and projected 2030 emissions moving from 815 down to now 500 is, I think, significant in terms of, of progress in climate action. But I, I am wary of holding that up entirely as a success because the target itself strikes me as insufficient. And when we look at net zero by 2050, that's clear for a one and a half degree trajectory mm -hmm. for 2030. Where should the world be at and, and where should Canada be at? The first question is easier than the, your second one, because at the global level, the, the laws of physics apply unequivocally. And uh, that means that at the global level, by 2030, we would need to, to half roughly our, our carbon dioxide emissions. And it also applies roughly for our greenhouse gas emissions, so including methane and so on. Uh, compared to their 2010 levels. That's at the global level. Now, it has been a long-standing discussion and debate, and it is even ingrained in the very first establishment of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, that not every country is the same. And some countries have more responsibility for climate change, are in a better position to act on it, have, have more resources, more capacity. And this is kind of the entire equity and fairness debate. And that debate needs to be when, when you, we try to bring down this global pathway to what countries need to do. Th these are aspects that need to be taken into account. For example, for a country as Canada, is it fair or is it a fair contribution that Canada does exactly the same as the global average? So that means it basically assumes that also developing countries, such as India or so, are doing pretty much the same because otherwise it doesn't add up. And so. Every target one sets domestically or for a country kind of needs to reflect on what it expects, either implicitly, but preferably explicitly from other countries to do and reflect whether that is actually fair and whether it makes any sense. Again, it requires uh, societal value judgments. And then, of course, they can be, which then can be quantified, but we can't make the value judgments for society. And those political choices, being a political actor, I see science as the starting point. So I would look at the IPCC's report and say, well, they're calling for 45% below 2010 levels. I can do the basic math in Canada. That would take us to 380 megatons. And then equity, fairness considerations, and societal and political considerations might be layered on to say, what more can we do to contribute mm -hmm. to efforts around the world? What more can we do domestically to show that we are going to be leaders on this because we benefited from fossil fuels to such a significant degree as a developed country? Recognizing a cold climate like Canada and the fossil fuel industry that we have as a matter of natural resources make the domestic initiatives a little bit more of a challenge than perhaps in other countries like the UK. But the premise still is let's start with the science, 380, that should be the minimum that we achieve, and we ought to achieve probably more. And Paris itself, the agreement contemplates that, where developed countries then do more because we've benefited more traditionally. But fair to say that the science, if I were to advocate for a stronger 2030 target, should start with that 45% below 2010 levels that the IPCC called for. Yeah, at, at the global level. And, and there are a couple more scientific arguments that also argue for strong near-term reductions. The, the deeper near-term reductions we see, the more we hedge against uncertainties and against risks, against climate risks, because deeper near-term reductions limit the total amount of CO2 that we will be putting in the atmosphere and thus lower the maximum warming that we will be seeing. But also, in the end, Looking at this now already for 10 years, we know that some things will be really hard. We should not just uh, turn away from, from, from that challenge. 
but it's only when we were we, when we start addressing those challenges and um, when we start and, and we try to resolve them that we will be finding the solutions that are needed and, and in that sense it's much better to kind of try and go as deep as one can to hedge against those uncertainties in the long term uncertainties and setbacks that will definitely come I mean we also hope that there will be some positive surprises but at this point there is just no way to tell us that and, and, and doing a lot in the near term really puts us in a better position. I mentioned the Canadian climate plan. There's a clear articulation for how we get to 500 megatons by 2030. It also acknowledged though, and, and importantly, that this is by no means a final step. And it also explicitly said that a new 2030 target would be announced prior to the next COP in November, 2021. That I think is really good news. The meaningful progress is really good news. Now, one view would say that we should set a science-based 2030 target now, layer on those equity considerations to perhaps be even more ambitious, even if we can't find an acceptable path to meet it with today's technology or today's politics. Another view would say we should adopt targets that are achievable, move plans forward, and incrementally ratchet up our ambition as possibilities open. Canada has adopted that latter view, I think. I wonder what you think about these two competing ways to think about our 2030 ambition. I think I can be a bit provocative here in, in, the, in a sense that I don't believe that a pure science-based target is possible. Even if you would just take the global number and you downscale it to, to Canada, you actually made a very strong ethical choice there. Uh, even if you made it unknowingly, but you made it. You said every country needs to do exactly the same. And Canada is perfectly fine that Canada does exactly the same as countries in other positions. A pure science-based target, once you go from the global level down, doesn't exist. So you need to really confront this head on. And that doesn't take away that the kind of the, the competition um, between an ambitious, ambitious target or an ambition that might be really hard to, to achieve or is really an aspiration versus a target that you will surely uh, be able to meet and, uh, and, and thus leaves little open to be filled in. I think, I think for 2030, there is a bigger call to have something. I mean, 2030, as you know, is, is just around the corner. If you want to achieve something by 2030, you basically need to be able to say today what you're going to put in place and how you're going to achieve it. So I think for 2030, you want to have a policy in place where you know where you start rolling. For 2050, that is different. I mean, that is three three decades in the future. And, and there you can also, again, with, with policies that look at research and development, that look at piloting certain, certain aspects where you can leave things a bit more open. Finally, I think one consideration is as well, if, for example, those two visions are disjoint, the, the ambition that you believe would be ethically and morally the right one, and the ambition that, unfortunately, you can only achieve given technical means. And also, ultimately, there is this concept of a just transition. Uh, you can't just shut down your entire economy because you exactly. will, or you need, you need to support all parts of population of your citizens to go together in this transition. It is a huge societal transition. Everybody needs to be part of it. And also, some, some groups need particular support in making that transition. My point, however, is that if there is a big discrepancy there, there are ways to also provide climate leadership beyond one's borders. One can provide climate finance to help implement, well, with clear climate finance that, is, that has clear rules and has clear environmental integrity 
measures in place that helps other countries make the transition faster or that helps other countries adapt to climate change. That is another way to also show willingness that you know that morally we should be there, but technically it's, it's, we, we really can't do this, but we know our responsibility and here we are to step up. It's interesting you say that in recent conversations that I've had, obviously 380 even, if we were to just bring that global down to Canada, 380 is itself incredibly hard to achieve in Canada. And that's even before the recognition that we, we ought to do more than that, given how much we've benefited mm -hmm. from fossil fuels. Recognizing that international offsets or climate financing and doing our part around the world, Norway is a good example in some respects where I saw a contribution of, I think, over a billion dollars to re reduce peat fires in Indonesia as just one example. But there are many others that you could point to around the world. The challenge put back to me is we want to make sure that we don't provide the possibility of taking on climate financing to be a reason for us not to take action at home. And so there is a delicate balance to do as much as we can domestically and then run up against that wall and then take on additional international obligations and, and, and partnerships and climate financing, but not to upfront say, well, we're going to do our part by this international work and then we can pass the buck a little bit at home. Uh, th that is a fair point. And I think in, in this respect, what is important is, is to see the, the near term in context of the long term target. The long term target where, again, globally, we need to get to net zero just to stop warming. Okay, which role is Canada going to play there? Do, is Canada setting a net zero target? Okay, well, if, it's, if there is a net zero target, it's clear where you need to end up. And so even if it's hard by 2030, that 2030 target needs to be put into a long-term path and a credible path, not just one that uh, we, we, do, we do something in 2030 and then we'll figure out great things after right. that. Um, no, it needs to be a credible path between today up to that long-term target of net zero, yeah, 20, whatever you have as, as a net zero target. And I think there are lessons to be learned here, for example, from, from the UK with its Committee on Climate Change, which is an independent body that provides climate change advice to the government and provides like targets and the evidence base for target setting over time and also provides update reports on how the government is doing in meeting those targets. And, and they're sometimes quite harsh. That shorter term carbon budgeting process in the context of an, an expert advisory body is certainly a really important part of turning those longer term ambitions into shorter term action. And we have now an accountability act that we are proceeding with. I hope that we significantly improve, but I'm hardened a little bit. I have to say it can be frustrating at times to see slower progress than one would like, or at least that the numbers don't match. So when I mentioned that 380 megaton ambition for 2030 on the science, recognizing that it ought to be even more, it's frustrating that we can't get there, but recognizing the challenges, the longer term goal of net zero, if we are taking credible action now, doing everything we can domestically now, recognizing that we can't maybe get to where we want to be in 2030, you would say, fair, recognize that, do everything you can, Beyond that, make sure you're exercising moral leadership by providing climate financing and, and working internationally to then meet your targets as much as you reasonably can over and above domestic action, but really make sure that you're putting policies in place now that are going to ramp up that will make it possible to achieve net zero by 2050 if you are unable to achieve your ambition for 2030. Absolutely. And in, in addition, I would like to also make sure that people question the phrase, what can be done? 
Fair. And I have a good and I have a good example here, and 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 again from the UK, just because I'm most familiar with it, but also because some things have changed here. The the Committee on Climate Change, when they provide their advice, they take into account these kind of both the technical aspects and then the social aspects. Now, the past year, 2019, we had something that was called a climate assembly or citizens assembly on climate. Basically, a I don't know if you're familiar with the yeah. It's a good idea, so citizens' assemblies. A, yeah, it's a representative uh, selection cross cross society that comes together to discuss without political background, but uh, with the good of society in mind, what should be done about this problem. And 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 the insights and, and the recommendations of that citizens' assembly have been taken into account when providing that hmm. uh, new advice. And the interesting thing is that what before these well-meaning analysts of the Committee on Climate Change, what uh, what they thought was impossible or kind of unacceptable, uh, ultimately out of the Citizens' Assembly came forward as clear recommendations. So now in this last budget that they put forward, they had kind of a societal support to put forward particularly behavior change measures that just three years ago would have been considered entirely impossible. But now with, with that encouragement and with the support of the Climate Assembly's voice, it is suddenly, it can be done. So think, what, what, what is possible is definitely also a subjective matter. And unquestionably, opinions change in a hurry when confronted with the evidence and scientific voices and political leaders that use their platforms to educate Canadians about how important it is to tackle climate change and and address the climate crisis. If you look in the Canadian context, a number of years ago, uh, Liberal leader Stéphane Dion proposed a green shift and was attacked up and down for proposing the carbon tax effectively and lost the election. And it was seen in Canadian politics for some time that carbon taxation was difficult politics. And yet we have subsequently, and in the last five years, we've now established a national price on pollution. But we've also just recently in our, in our updated climate plan proposed to incrementally increase it every year, now $15 a ton beyond 2022. So it would ramp up to $170 a ton by 2030. It would make a demonstrable difference in tackling climate change unquestionably I hope it also establishes some sense of leadership internationally to see that it can be done in a place like Canada. And politics changes in a hurry because this is something that would have been thought unfathomable 10 years ago. Absolutely. I would add to that uh, just three years ago in 2017, kind of it, it's really my impression is almost like with, with the 1.5 report, at least in Europe, with uh, uh, Fridays for Futures, the, the children youth strikes. Uh, there has been a real societal momentum that is supporting these kind of policies. And, and these policies are important in a sense that they provide a long-term signal to the private sector, also to people and, and to citizens. And having them enshrined in uh, legislation also provides confidence to, to observers, like, for example, the, the kind of studies that feed into the UNEP GAP report that look at what, how countries are doing, how are they implementing, how, how serious are they. Setting a target is nothing if, if you don't if you don't make it legally binding. And then again, it, a legally binding target doesn't mean anything if you don't show any evidence that you intend to meet it or that you intend to put in place policies to meet it. And and all these things kind of add up to more confidence that this climate policy will effectively deliver. And of course, things can always be scaled up or scaled back or adjusted. That is clear. But if the framework is there. 
that is extremely important. And it's one area, the way you've described policy efforts gives me some optimism in the Canadian context where the price on pollution is a good example where we put it into place and now we're going to ratchet it up. We have policies now on retrofits and on EV charging infrastructure, and it's really about ratcheting those up. We have policies on reducing methane emissions. We just have to ratchet those policies up, but ensuring that the building blocks are in place. A lot of work in the last five years has gone into putting those building blocks in place. So I see it as in the Canadian context, we've seen meaningful progress since 2015. I mentioned those projected 2030 emissions have been mm-hmm. reduced. If policies hold, this is the politics yeah. of it, but if those policies hold, we see projected 2030 emissions already down 25%. The updated climate plan will reduce that even further. When we take a step back and look at global efforts, obviously I'm more optimistic now that President Biden is in place and, and the US will hopefully be more of a climate leader than, than laggard. You are more informed and involved than most people in the world. Your role is now lead author of the sixth assessment for the IPCC. When you look at how far we've come, but also how far we remain from where we need to be in that emissions gap, do you have optimism for the world as it were? I mean, obviously we aren't where we need to be, but are you overall optimistic or, or would you say still quite pessimistic given the science and, and how far away we are? I'm a, a general optimist. So I, I believe we, we can rise to the challenge that we have in front of us. And if I look at, at the developments, I'm also optimistic because I, I see that this, these are supported by societal understanding, societal support and, and understanding of the urgency of the problem and does the need to tackle it. Yes, they are definitely not sufficient yet to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees. Uh, But the fact that more and more net zero targets are being put forward is good because countries really then keep in mind the end, not necessarily the end game yet, but because a net zero target doesn't need to be the end point of the journey, but they have a key milestone. And and it's, it's such an important one, one where we stop putting or stop using the atmosphere as a waste bin. We really need to be just not adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere anymore. And I think these net zero targets, therefore, provide me with optimism. At the same time, even in those countries where net zero targets have been put forward, 2030 emissions are often not yet in line to kind of meet those ambitions that are set for 2050 or for 2060. So there is definitely more more to do. The Paris Agreement from the beginning was intending to be to be an architecture, a framework, a first set of, of targets or, or pledges were put forward, highly insufficient. Now we, we are in, in the second round or the first time that, that they have to be updated. We see that they are being updated. They are definitely better in, in most cases. Some countries did not do so, so well in, in updating them. But for example, Brazil, their updated NDC is actually weaker than they had put in before. But actually, it's going in the positive direction. Of course, if you ask me, as, as a citizen, yes, I would like to see warming to be limited as, at as low levels as possible. I think today we already see climate impacts that I would not like to see. I see climate impacts in the Arctic that I would not like to see and that I, and that I know will be continuing for centuries. So if we could stop warming today, I, I, I will sign for it. If we can stop it at 1.5 as well. But any degree to which we manage to limit this impact is, is a positive step for me. And so, yeah, so I remain optimistic uh, while, while also highlighting the realism of we are not there yet. There is a lot of work to do. 
but I believe the eyes of the world are maybe starting to turn in the right direction. My last question is less about educating listeners and more about maybe advice to me as a parliamentarian. You mentioned Brazil, a, a clear example of why politics matters and political leadership mm -hmm. matters on an important question like climate action. I was in Brussels in March or so of, of 2019, I think it was, and I spoke to officials at the EU about climate action and net zero and the plans that they were putting into place for net zero by 2050. I've been engaged with Chris Stark of the Climate Change Committee in the UK, and I saw in May they were seriously discussing net zero by 2050. So I put a bill forward net zero by 2050, and it got picked up, thankfully, and was part of our platform. So net zero by 2050 is now going to be in Canadian law, I take a step back and I've done advocacy to ratchet up the ambition for 2030. It's not where I would like it to be yet, but I recognize the practical difficulties of implementation and, and wanting to be seen to achieve a goal rather than have a goal that is unachievable. I, I do understand that that defense, at least, of where we are at. But when you look at possible advocacy as a parliamentarian going forward, ambition for 2050, check. 2030 ambition is still much work to be done, I think. Accountability, we have legislation in parliament now, and there's continued advocacy. And so as between ratcheting up 2030 ambition or certain policy actions that maybe have gone unexplored, if you were in my shoes, would you be directing your energies to be more forceful for 2030 ambition? Or would you be directing your energies to ratchet up the implementation or to to double down on implementation in a more serious way, spend more money to tackle a particular policy problem that has gone untackled in a serious way? Where would you direct your efforts if you were in my shoes? That's a good question. And I think as many of those questions, it's not an either or answer. Um, so a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it's really... really Putting 20, the 2030 ambition in line with, with getting to net zero is absolutely essential. Otherwise, the net zero target is, is already unrealistic by, from, from the start. You haven't even started trying to achieve it. And then again, putting ambition down on paper without the policy action and, and the funding and, and, the, and the resources to implement it is also empty. So it, it, it is this layered cake, just focusing on one of those layers doesn't provide you with a nice dessert. So you really need all of it. And it would make sense then to say, we've got the right 2050 target as far as it goes. Our 2030 target should be really ambitious when we announce it before November 2021. But recognizing the realistic challenges of where we're at with technology, I, I take your point, question what can be achieved, which I think is a really important point. But whatever it is, then the next goal would be provide a process to reconsider that 2030 target as between now and 2030, perhaps in 2024 or 2025, and, and make sure that that's mandated in our Accountability Act is, is a, one thought that I have. And, and then otherwise, make sure that the minister's office makes it clear to all of us, if the 2030 target is not 45% below 2010 levels or even more ambitious, taking into account equity considerations, how are we going to make up the difference between 2030 and 2050 and show us the arc and show us the plan, even, even in the face of uncertainty, show us how you seek to achieve net zero by 2050, knowing what we know today? Absolutely. And maybe just one last reflection here is if it's hard by 2030, and if that means you can't go deeper, you really need to explain how that what is impossible by 2030 is going to happen from 2031 onwards. Exactly, and, and, and that really means that if, if you are hitting hard barriers of where you, you think you can't eliminate emissions, 
you need to find solutions. And either that means you need to think out of the box or you need to start investing in finding solutions to reduce those emissions. These can be technological solutions. These can be societal solutions, meaning you change your economical structure. And that, of course, doesn't happen from one year on the other and should probably start today. And, and, and maybe it takes a decade or so to be implemented. And by 2030, will not have resulted in a lot of emissions reductions. But for example, then you have kind of reschooled a workforce so that it can become active in another sector or in, in, in another part of the economy so that families can continue to provide or, or, or parents can, can continue to provide for their children. Because ultimately, that is something that scares everybody. And, but with a plan that can really help people understand that there is a common goal, there is a common direction, and it's, it's, it's a desirable and a positive one. Well, Yuri, I have to say, when you when you talk about reasons for optimism, and one of those reasons is that the eyes of the world are starting to move in the right, starting to look in the right direction, I think it is in no small part because of your work and the work of like-minded scientists at the IPCC and at the UN and really bringing credible science to bear that then someone in my shoes can pick up and tell my constituents and tell Canadians, this is what we need to follow. This is what we need to take seriously. This is the evidence and we have to take the evidence seriously for jobs, for the sake of our kids and for the sake of our planet, for the sake of our moral obligations. So I really appreciate all of your work. I really appreciate your time today and please don't hesitate to be in touch. Thank you again for talking to me. Uh, I'm a, it's always nice to hear that our, that our work is appreciated and that it is being used. It's a lot of work. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's also a labor of love. So uh, all the IPCC, most of the UNEP work is, um, we do it as a service to the community. Uh, on top of our normal jobs. And we do it because we think it's important. It's very important and it can have an impact. So it's really nice to hear that it is being used as a tool to inform decisions. It's, it's, it's really the best thing one can wish for. Well, it matters more than I, I think you realize. And, and looking back, we'll all realize how important that work has been. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Uncommons. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice.